0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing by students in Lighthouse's workshops. The draft happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of The Draft 21.0 was home and featured short fiction writer Katie Boland, experimental and hybrid forms writer Beth Brinsfield, narrative nonfiction writer Rachel Mazes, personal essayist Ray Kemble, and a writer from Lighthouse's Young Writers Program, Claire Trainer.
1: Welcome to The Draft 21.0. My name is Mike Henry. Who's new to The Draft? Draft Virgins, awesome. There's a few of you out there. So for those of you who don't know or who have forgotten, like I sometimes do, things, The draft is um, where we take the current workshoppers and instructors in those workshoppers, draft their students, um, some of their students, not all of them, just a couple, just four, five tonight. Four? And then a special consideration, um, a young writer we've drafted as well. So they get conscripted to read something, a draft, that they've been working on during the workshop session. Um, This is one of my favorite events during the year because I think this really shows the immense talent that is in the workshops um, at any given point in time. Um, And I think it's also a great opportunity for some of our really talented students to get all the love and the... um, kudos that they so justly deserve. So um, that's the draft. Tonight's draft, that theme, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but have you heard about this thing called the Big Read? (laughs) Perhaps you've received an email or two about it. (laughs) <laughs> Awkward laughter, yes, probably. Um, so uh, Lighthouse is doing the big read um, where it's sort of like one book, one Denver, where the whole city is reading one book, and that book is Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. So um, the theme for tonight is housekeeping, which can be as loosely interpreted as you want it to be. Um, but So just keep that in your mind. Every time you hear a new piece, think, how does that relate to housekeeping? And then you'll see these really engaging sort of thematic <laughs> possibilities weaving themselves together right? Um, I'm going to introduce the instructor who will introduce the draftee right? so first up um, we have a young writer um, and so I'm, it's my pleasure to introduce you to um, Meg Nix the wonderful instructor and director of our youth program she's been doing it for what, three years now? four years? three years? four years now and she's still here, and she still speaks to me. It's really fantastic. Um, as as a director and as an instructor, she is unflappable. She is totally cool under pressure. I swear, she could be like in the CIA. She could be like a total spy and just would just you know be in the deepest situations, like Jason Bourne kind of thing. And she'd be like, "I got this. I can handle this." Um, she's incredibly smart. She's super talented as a writer herself. Um, when she's not taking care of all the other young writers, who they follow her around like little ducklings. Every every Wednesday afternoon, we have the tune council, and they come in and they just they follow her around and um, eat tons and tons of food. Um, it's my pleasure. Let's give it up, big hand for Meg Nix. I'm
2: Meg, as Mike said, um, and this is Julia, who. Um, is the director of the Colorado Conservatory of Dance and so tonight you're going to see an excerpt from a collaboration that we do together every year where our high school writers write short pieces and um, the ballet company then brings them to life on the stage. So she's going to say a little bit about the collaboration and then I'll talk a little bit about the young writer.
3: So um, mark your calendars. Um, our performance is May 4th, and it will be um, performed at the Pinnacle Charter School or um, Performing Arts Center at PCS. And um, it is – the the theme of that performance is revolutions and revolutions of all kinds. Um the choreographer that you'll see today is Jacqueline Campos, and um, she is a sophomore at, at Peak-to-Peak High School, and uh, or Charter School, and um, she has been dancing with us since she was four... Years old, um, and this is her fourth year choreographing. So our, our students um, go through a process where, probably much like the writing students, where they learn how to compose dances, and then they get to to do it themselves, and then they get to design the costumes along with the writers, and. Um, uh, music and uh, lighting and bring it all to the stage so it's really exciting um, her dancers today, she'll, you'll actually see Jacqueline um, dance but then Momo uh, Sakai and Sarah Zhang will be dancing with her
2: um, and the young writer is Claire Trainer, who is not so young anymore she uh, started at Lighthouse 8 years ago and she's graduating this year um, <laughs> And Yay, Claire! (laughs) Um, She's going to DePaul, and she's going to be studying writing in Chicago. Um, And uh, Claire is exceptional. I know teachers aren't supposed to have their favorites, but I think as a teacher, you know when there's an exceptional writer right off the bat. Um, She has just this sense of eagerness always in the classroom and her writing has that too just sort of a forward but very measured momentum um and I think that's in her person too she um Claire has had a tough couple of years she had to leave the state for a little while um for health reasons which you'll hear about in her piece and um when she came back she had met a dog in Oklahoma, one time when she was there, and she drove all the way back to get the dog, and bring him back to Colorado, um, which was like a 23-hour round trip. Um, but she she's just thoughtful and calculated, and I think so much of her. Um, I think one really cool thing about her piece, you know, tonight the theme is home, and her piece is sort of about a home away from home and um, I think the cool thing about this collaboration is that you see words finding home in bodies which is something we don't experience often as writers um, and it's a really neat thing to experience for the young writers and as an audience to see that sort of enveloping an embodiment of, of literature so I'll leave it to them
4: Quiet time on the psych ward. Five lean bodies of hollow-eyed teenagers curled against one another on the purple threadbare couch, criss knees, banging. Three more heavy-lidded girls sat in chairs, legs clad in sweatpants, folded like bird's wings. Fragile. One girl, 15, with knees drawn, curled over herself, resting on the floor. The nurses with the keys and badges needed to get outside the cinderblock prison told us it was quiet time, but in the twilight-saturated room, I heard the whoosh click of blue metal knitting needles and the brush of scratchy cardboard puzzle pieces across the laminate wooden floor. Every so often, someone would cough quiet into the sleeve of her tie-dyed sweatshirt Every 45 seconds, the feeding tubes churned, pumping sawdust liquids into two separate stomachs. The tape holding the yellow tubes in place peeled away from each girl's cheek, like paint off the side of a decaying building. Every so often, the cheery blare of Christmas carols we'd heard thousands of times snuck through double-paned plastic windows and thick oak door with the shrill ringing of the phone. "'Catherine, your brother,' a nurse called from behind the med counter. Catherine paused for a moment, set her knitting in her lap. Everyone else watched her, needle still. "'Tell him I don't want to talk.' The phone clicked safely back into its cradle, and for a heartbeat, no needles knit." No puzzle pieces slid, no music sang in empty halls lined with the mattresses of those of us who could not be trusted in a room alone. I could barely hear my own breath. Everyone was silent. Catherine, do you want to talk about it? Someone asked from the chair tucked beneath the broken stereo. No thanks. We all sat, staring at the buff floor, and our chipped nail polish spun our rings on our fingers. Okay, and silent sounds started once more.
1: That was amazing. Thank you so much. Well done, huh? <laughs> so that's the Lighthouse Young Writers Program and the Colorado Conservatory of Dance. Um, the Young Writers Program is in thirty-five schools right now. Is that true, Meg? Is that about the right number? Something like, that. Something, like something like. It's hard to keep track. There's so many of them. Um, and then we have workshops. Um, Mostly on the weekends here at Lighthouse, um, all the time. So, um, if you have some young aspiring writers, let them know about us. So, next up, um, when when you say Odysseus of the Nimble Wits, is that an epithet? What's that called? Anyone? This is the quiz. Anybody? Do you know what I mean? Like so and so of the something that sort of describes who they are? Okay, well, anyways. Right, the, yeah, uh-huh, anyways, okay, so, um, the next instructor is Richard Froud, and my epithet, or whatever it's called for him, is Richard of the Tremendous Beard, <laughs> as you'll shortly see, um, so Richard is, uh, damn him, he's going off to med school soon, is he, is he gone yet, is he here, oh, there you are, okay, you're back there, okay, I know, it's very sad, um. We're hoping he gets into med school somewhere here in Colorado, and he stays and teaches for us. Because I mean, med school's not that hard, right? You could still teach. <laughs> not a big deal. I just gonna, you know, you learn all the bones. The heart, heart has four chambers. You're good, right? That's all you need to know. Anyways, okay. So Richard's going off to med school, um, and I'm thinking it's either because um, the challenge of teaching at Lighthouse is too strenuous and challenging for him. <laughs> Probably not. Or maybe it's not challenging enough. I don't know. Somewhere in the middle, probably. Um, he's definitely a super popular teacher. Um, they're the Fraudites. They, they follow him around like little ducklings. Um, that's our name for them. Um, he also um, is the lead nonfiction instructor in the Book Project, which is a two-year program um, for helping um, uh, advanced writers finish the books that they're working on. Um, in, in this case, he works with the memoirists um, and nonfiction writers. Um, in terms of his own writing, Richard has um, enjoyed some recent successes. Um, the Denver Art Museum has a new exhibit up called Modern Masters, which I highly recommend. You should go see it. It's from, like, Picasso to Warhol. It's amazing. Um, and in the middle, is a fr- there's fraud. So um, it's really amazing. So uh, the Denver Art Museum asked us to... Um, have a couple of faculty members write surrealist poems using a page of housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson where you actually cut up all the words and you pick, pick them out of a bag and then you write a poem a short passage um, and so Richard has a poem up at the Denver Art Museum in this exhibit he's, he's on one wall on the other wall is a Miro a Salvatore Dali, there's a Giacometti statue and a Frida Kahlo in the same room so it's really amazing um, and Joanna R- Rocca who's another instructor, has a has another piece up there. So that's pretty cool. Rancic, Rancic. Chris Rancic. Joanna's um, was another poem, but um, they didn't have wall space. I guess they care about wall space and stuff like that. Um, thank you, Andrea. Um, and also just this week, Cheryl Strayed. Perhaps you've heard of her. Yeah. yeah. She announced that she'd chosen uh, Richard's essay, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, as winner of the 2013 Wabash Prize for Fiction. Please give it up for Richard Froud.
5: Thanks, Mike. Hi, everyone. (laughs) It's really embarrassing that that poem is up there next to those amazing paintings because it looks really silly next to the, the, Oh, the Salvador D'Alia, what's that? Anyway, (laughs) but still, uh, the exhibition is very good. Um, I'm going to introduce Beth Brinsfield, who I can see sitting over there. Um, Beth Brinsfield came to Lighthouse a few years removed from an MFA at the University of Montana. She began in memoir class, but for the last three sessions has been a stalwart member of the experimental and hybrid forms class. While her work retains a grounding in the autobiographical, it is the transcendence of something magic that makes this writing her own. Not the magic of the conjurer, because these are not tricks. Rather, gestures in language and image that bring us closer to a shared truth the seemingly unreal that sheds its skin to reveal not only itself but what we take for granted as once new as at once new and known tonight beth will be reading two pieces in farewells she embodies the spirit of our experimental class by developing her own form and maybe even a new genre in the shape of an experimental work for children the piece questions the nature of home movement and all that we attach to our belongings in Things Lost in Fairy Tales, she continues to address these themes in spare, fluent prose. How do the things we lose make us who we are? Do we really lose these things, or do they lose us? Please welcome Beth Brinsfield. Hi.
6: <laughs> um. I didn't know that I was a Fraudite, but I guess I just learned that. I just signed up for my fourth class with Richard, and he's a great teacher. Um, This is called Things Lost in Fairy Tales. At my mother's house, it is my last chance to gather missing items from the basement. I go to see if the boxes are there, and some of them are, on metal shelves covered in dust. They have been on these makeshift shelves for 20 years. The boxes hold musical records... The witch costume I wore when I was seven. Boat glasses and plastic silverware from when we were sailors. Old clothes. Suede coats. Flowery print dresses. Plaid. There's a small wooden box of things I know are missing from other missing things. The gold pin for the kilt. The blue button from a cardigan. The top of the fish food can. The square around the letter S. The roof to my dollhouse and ladder to the ship the train whistle. I am looking for my picture book collection. I have been looking for it for 25 years since my parents' divorce. Always it was in the blue bookcase with the sliding doors my father had painted. My favorite story was about an old man wandering in the woods who finds a crane in a trap and sets the crane free. He then returns home to his wife. The couple doesn't have children, and so when a girl shows up and says, If you let me live with you, I will make you the most beautiful paper. The old couple agrees. The girl says she will make the paper at night by herself in her room. You can't peek in on me. Every night, the old couple can hear the making of paper, distant sounds. They love the girl as a daughter, but one night, the old woman can't keep her promise anymore, and she peeks in to see that the girl is a crane. The girl comes out of the room and says she must leave now. I search for the book for my children. I can find a a record of it, but it is not exactly about what I think. The crane does not make paper. She makes cloth. I am looking for a felted rainbow-striped sweater. I want it for my children's dolls. They are boys, but I have given them dolls, and when they are two and three and four, they carry them by one foot and push them in wooden wagons around the house. A long time ago, I went to the pink beach with my parents and my sister. My father bought us wool sweaters at a century-old British clothing store. The colors of my sweater were deep, the pattern unique, not exactly in the order of a rainbow. I cried when we got home, and the housekeeper washed it in hot water along with some other winter clothes, and the sweater shrunk and turned into felt. I couldn't bear to part with the tiny garment and kept it in a trunk for years. There's a key I'm looking for as well, a key lost at sea. I look for it in these boxes. I can't understand why it is not here. I remember a story my mother told me a year or so ago. With a friend, she had just taken a trip on a Russian ocean liner, and one night she went by herself to see an opera on the boat. The singing was so beautiful, she wanted to stay with her forever. She kept drinking the same cocktail over and over, trying to preserve the music inside of herself like jam. "'She passed out at the bar and woke up the in, in the infirmary. "'The ship's doctor scolded her and told her she was lucky she did not die. "'She made me swear I wouldn't tell you, "'but she has lost her senses, and I don't think she would mind now. "'I look in the box for, box for, boxes for her senses. "'I wonder if I could put every item in this basement together, "'if I could show her all of these things, "'if her brain would piece back together like a puzzle.' I close up the cardboard by folding one corner in. I have taken a few things, a tin of old letters from pen pals and camp friends, my parents' wedding album. I like to think (laughs) the only things I am missing are things lost in fairy tales, a red cloak, golden hair, 11 brothers, white pebbles on the path, the birth mother. Okay. Okay, I'll just ask my friend to bring you my water. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, this next piece is called Farewells, and it's the book that I wrote for children. And so I guess whenever I pause, uh, the idea is that you have to imagine me turning the page of a huge picture book. farewells every fall we carry the sled across the land we follow the trees we marked on other journeys we travel from high up through snow to fields and highways through industry railroads and mines corn and wheat shipping at the ocean we take our belongings out of the sled the water takes them away to the middle of the sea We spend some time in the city. We see a bakery and church before heading back through valleys, over great rivers, following the markers on trees in the snow, the leaves and wind changing on the way while we we are pulling the empty sled behind us. One fall, when we start to put belongings in the sled, we decide to put in only things we have borrowed. We pack the sled with clothing and shoes, toys and jewelry. We gather fairy tales and stories, dictionaries full of every language. We take manners we have learned to follow. We take character traits. We carry the borrowed things over snow and fields and highways. The waves cart our things out to sea. We visit the city again, this time stopping at the bakery and church before we trek home along our map of trees. On the way home, a golden voice is walking with us. We cannot see anyone except birds and wonder if the voice belongs to a bird. But the voice does not warble or caw. It tells us we should go to the water any season, not just in fall. So in winter, we decide to go to the water even in cold weather, taking only things we have found. We take shells and rocks and and trinkets. We gather animals. We carry people we love. The land is covered in snow, the fields, the highways, even boats near the water have been lifted out and put on the shore, and sheets of ice cover part of the sea. We set our found objects on the ice and let them float out to the cold ocean. Afterwards, we take warmth at the bakery, then the church, and in the quietness of snowy streets before setting out for home again. We trudge home and notice the constellation moving in the sky above us. The constellation changes shape and always has a different number of stars. At first, the design has three stars, then it grows to six. The most stars it ever has is ten. We follow the constellation to the top of a mountain. We try to climb the ladder to one star that looks close and bright. In the blue of the morning, the constellation is gone. We never see it again, even in black sky. In spring, we decide to take only things we have bought. We take furniture and rugs and lamps. We gather silverware and pots and pans and candy and food. We cart paintings and picture frames, a car and boat. We carry our schooling and travels. As we walk through the forest, we smell the lemony mud of spring. We see mothers in green fields with babies. We spot violet violet budding flowers and yellow grasses along the highways. We take our sled again all the way to the water. We place the heavy things in the lapping surf. The high tide has arrived and carts our bought things out to sea. On our way home, we hike through pockets of warm wind. We feel wool on our skin. We look to see if we are wearing sweaters, but we are not. We are never cold. We are not ever hot. We feel the perfect weather in the city, across the highways, the fields, and forests. In summer, we decide to take things we have lost. We take tickets, a wedding ring, a key. We gather money and buttons. We pack a box full of mittens and coats and hats and scarves. We take swimming goggles and beach towels. We cart relatives we have already said goodbye to. We carry each year of our childhood. The sled is empty, but we pull it full of our memories. In every season of the year, we have kept one thing because we could not resist. We have kept a storybook. We have kept a dog. We have kept a teapot. We have kept one memory. All we have left besides these four things are things we have made. That's it.
1: Thank you, Beth. That was lovely. So um, I I teach uh, memoir classes. I also teach poetry, but I taught a memoir class this past session. Um, And our next introducer, um, faculty member, Catherine Eastburn, also teaches memoir. Um, And so I know that um, memoir is a tricky form to teach. Um, It's part craft, it's part um, cheerleader, and it's part therapist, I think. Um, We always have to kind of draw the line where you say, I have a master's degree in writing, not therapy. Um, but I do think there is tremendous power in watching students go through the process of writing their story and discovering really what the story is about, um, which means that they're discovering um, what they're truly about. And I know from talking to, to many of my students who have had um, Catherine in the past and reading evals and talking to other students of hers that she's a master at this In um, such a supportive and calm way, um, not only letting the students, encouraging the students to write beautiful work, but also to discover um, deeper truths. So, um, without further ado, um, please welcome Katherine Eastburn.
7: to introduce um, my two-time student, Rachel Mises. Rachel, I I did a little email interview with Rachel, and here are some of the things I learned about her. Um, She lives in her pajamas, um, both in her role as an attorney, researching and writing briefs for other lawyers, but also as a dedicated writer, composing and revising essays and stories, she basically never gets dressed or leaves the house except tonight. So, you guys are in for a treat. Um, she, uh, Rachel has crossed genres at Lighthouse. She's studied with Erica Krauss. She's taken workshops with Andre DeBeuss and Jennifer Egan. And she took uh, Laura Pritchett's course on writing sex scenes, which she particularly enjoyed. Um, <laughs> Her advice to writers is to find readers who will tell you the truth about your work and treasure them and buy them expensive gifts. (laughs) Um, She did not pay me or bribe me to do this introduction. Um, Seriously, um, Rachel is so accomplished. Her stories have been published in Slice, in Blackbird, in the Barcelona Review, in the MacGuffin. And since I have known her uh, in just a brief couple of years, her essays have appeared in the New York Times and in Lilith Magazine. Her essay, Bad Dog, that uh, started in a class and ended up in the New York Times, has recently been picked up by Bedford St. Martins uh, for a college writing textbook. Um, she takes orders from a 19-year-old cat, <laughs> Purum, and is watched over by the gentle spirits of three departed dogs, uh, about whom she has written beautifully, Tilly, Chance, and Molly, Her husband, Steve, who is here tonight, loves that she writes but hates appearing in her work. And uh, be assured, he is not the central character in tonight's story. Um, What I have come to admire about Rachel's work is she is able to maintain um, an elegant, cool, and measured voice and prose to address difficult and emotionally laden, messy family stories, Um, and there's uh, nothing more difficult for a memoir personal essay writer to do. So um, here's Rachel Mises reading Man in Glass.
8: When I was growing up, my father carried on a secret life. Disappearing for weeks and even months at a time from our home in Queens, New York, leaving behind a dozen fresh bagels. I would wake up to a warm, doughy smell and find a brown paper bag on the kitchen table and know he was gone. My mother moved supper from the dining room to the kitchen and told people my father was in Albany on business. I continued to eat the bagels long after they hardened, shoving them into a jar of strawberry jam gnawing on their thick sweetness until I consumed the last trace of him. He died a year ago without an address book or a cell phone. Penciled on a sheet of paper that hung from his refrigerator were phone numbers for a handful of people, my three sisters and me, each with a different out-of-state area code, his business manager, his doctor, and key employees of two funeral homes he owned. The cell phone number for his live-in girlfriend, Jennifer, A Belizean woman, who was also his nurse, was written at an angle and in pen. In the years before he died, he would lie in bed and have Jennifer call the numbers on the list. Get me Joe, he'd yell, referring to his business manager. No matter that it was four o'clock in the morning and Joe was asleep. Mr. Mazes wants to talk to you, she would say, when Joe picked up. At 60, Jennifer was 20 years younger than my father, but congestive heart failure had aged him and the gap seemed wider. He weighed 90 pounds. His head was shaved and he had no teeth. As far as I know, he had no friends. He left instructions to spread his ashes in the Atlantic without ceremony, so there was no chance for admirers to emerge at a funeral. My sisters and I remained at his bedside during his final hours, our throats catching on hymns, our warm hands enveloping his frigid ones. Earlier in the day, Jennifer had tried to shave him, He shook his head no, and that was the last we heard from him. For most of my adult life, although I knew my father lived in Miami, I had no home address for him, and I wondered if I would even know of his death. At 75, a heart attack took away his ability to hide. Concerned about his failing health, Jennifer summoned me to his two-bedroom apartment. Apartments on the east side of the building had ocean views, but his was on the west side. It was decorated with high-end leather furniture and various artworks. A nine-inch man encased in glass, balanced on an end table. The man was made of plaster. His head was small, his expression unhappy. Looking at it made me shudder. When I was growing up, even when my father was home, he shut himself in the master bedroom, declaring it off-limits to us. When I wanted my mother, I stood outside their bedroom door, and rocked back and forth on a spot of carpet that lay above a creaky board. My father hid his drawn, handsome face behind a book at every meal, his high forehead emerging above the pages like an empty billboard. His grayish-red hair was always perfectly combed. He once overheard my younger sister Miriam say to a telephone caller that my mother was in the bathroom. She couldn't have been older than ten. Go to your room, he said evenly, and he followed her and whipped her with his belt. His own childhood had been hard. He was born in Moscow in 1933, beneath portraits of Stalin and the Lubavitcher rabbi. When he was an infant, his father drowned. My father was an only child, and his mother abandoned him to her parents in the Russian countryside to find a new husband in the city. Several years passed before she reclaimed him. Weeks after my father would mysteriously leave our house, he would return and I would race through the front door and down the slate path to the driveway, the screen door slamming behind me. I wrapped myself around him, the fabric-covered buckle of his trench coat pressing against my face in autumn, damp wool tickling my nose in winter. I squeezed as hard as I could, but it was like hugging a post. He handed me his leather briefcase, and I carried it into the house. Later, I held a hand towel for him as he washed up for dinner and served his food. To get his attention, I read poems I had written, When I was ten, one of the poems received a children's poetry prize. My father would have me recite it for company. It was about a soldier's death, something I viewed on TV. Speaking the words, I was filled at once with the subject's heaviness and with happiness because my father was listening. I had managed to get his attention, but I would come to resent that it took a poem. When I was six, I ran inside to tell my father I was going to marry my best friend from down the block. You can't, he said. Because I don't have a ring, I couldn't imagine anything standing in our way. <laughs> because you don't have your father's permission, he said. In the living room of his Miami apartment, a stone woman and child embraced each other. I couldn't help feeling the irony, but as for my father, I believe the sculpture moved him. He occasionally came to my rescue. When I was in my 30s, he bailed me out after I ran up an ungodly amount of credit card debt. He saved me from bankruptcy. Once when our family was traveling and I got my period, I was 14, he headed out in the middle of the night to find an open pharmacy and buy sanitary napkins. A few days before he died, I reminded him of the ways he had helped me. That's what a father does, he said. Eleven years earlier, my mother was run over by a bus in Los Angeles, a few blocks from her home. My father didn't attend the funeral. He called her apartment three days after the accident, and when I picked up, he started talking about selling her place. My mother's blood was barely dry on the asphalt. Paralyzed with grief, I could hardly speak or move, but I discovered I could scream. I raged at the phone's white plastic handset, my grip so tight it ached, until someone took the phone away. I sank into the couch and felt again what I had lost. But two months later, I went to Miami. I wanted to be with him and to see how he was handling her death now that some time had passed. Although divorced when the accident happened, they had been married for 20 years. He picked me up at the airport and we sat in his black Lexus. When I talked about the funeral, the rims of his eyes reddened and a single tear formed and then dissipated without falling. That was as sad as I ever saw him. He once told me that he didn't worry about my crying, which I did easily and often, that my tears were just a form of elimination. It's like you're pissing with your eyes. We sat together and I pissed with my eyes and then he dropped me off at my hotel. Although my father's emotions were stunted, the art he displayed emanated feelings of loss. Hanging in his kitchen was a picture of a Hasid wrapped in a prayer shawl, mourning the destruction of the Second Temple at Jerusalem's wailing wall. The Hasid grips his downturned head. Before his heart attack, my father was master of his universe, barking orders at employees, issuing commands to Jennifer and to Alicia, his Guatemalan mistress. He had kept his relationship with Alicia a secret for 40 years. After the heart attack, she came looking for him at his apartment, and the two women discovered each other. Around that time, I too learned of Alicia. One afternoon when I visited, a woman was sitting next to my father on the couch. He held her hand and called her Luz, Light. She was short. Age had rounded her belly, squared the corners of her face. They seemed like old friends, and to be polite, I asked where they had met. Though she knew I was his daughter, she gleefully described the scene. It was September 12, 1969, and I was sitting alone in Radio City Musical. You know, those red velvet seats? Your father approached me. It was Rosh Hashanah, the high holy days my father chimed in, while I did the math and realized I was seven at the time, at home with my mother, wondering where my father was. In that moment, I confirmed a lifetime of suspicion and what had been a painful mystery turned tawdry. This small woman was at the heart of it. He had preferred her to us. I ran to the kitchen and sobbed. They didn't come after me. I later learned my father was paying for her granddaughter's cooking school tuition. My father continued to see both women. It is a testament to the control he exercised over them that neither woman complained, not even when Alicia moved in and they shared not only my father but also the small apartment. Alicia replaced Jennifer in his bed. I learned from my sister, Beth, that Alicia had shoved Jennifer and pulled her hair, but my father remained indifferent to the distress he caused. Yet on a bookshelf in his office, he displayed a metal sculpture of a man and woman kneeling and facing each other, their heads and hands curving toward each other, forming a circle, where heads and hands touched the metal fused, obliterating the figure's fingers and palms, a picture of a couple dancing hung in his bathroom, and one of a couple kissing hung in the hall. I never saw my father dance with my mother or kiss her. Perhaps he did such things with Alicia. The last year of his life, his illness progressing, my father slept 22 hours a day. When, he, when I visited, he could barely stay awake, and I would return to my hotel room, vowing never to see him again. I felt as abandoned as I had in the face of a dozen warm bagels, though now time was running out. It should have mattered that an illness that he couldn't control and not another woman came between us, but it didn't. I was 50 years old, a lawyer and a writer, and I still couldn't maintain my equilibrium around my father. Of the two women, only Jennifer remained in the apartment, caring for my father around the clock. Now that my father is gone, I think about the man trapped in glass, the chassid grieving, and the couple dancing. The pieces evoke empathy and suggest love, that was my father's art. The metal sculpture of the couple facing each other balances on a stand in a corner of my living room. I placed it where I can see it from the kitchen and the dining room, too. When my sisters and I were going through my father's things, we nearly overlooked it on a low bookshelf in his darkened office. Only 14 inches tall and dark green, it was mixed in with other bric-a-brac. Although small, the sculpture is heavy, The metal is smooth and cold, the color mottled. Man and woman arch forward. Their torsos stretch, curving toward each other, casting a circular shadow. They kneel and bow, heads and hands touching.
1: Thank you, Rachel. That was amazing. Oh, dad, 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 dad. Um, So it's my distinct pleasure to introduce you to our next instructor. Um, We're doubling up on the nonfiction tonight. She's a nonfiction instructor. Um, And I thought I would do something a little creative um, in introducing her. So um, I've never taken Richard's Experimental and Hybrids Forms class, but I thought this would kind of fit maybe one of his exercises. Um, It's a Vicki Lindner recipe. How to make Vicki Lindner. That sounds weird. Anyways, so um, here are the ingredients. This is really bad. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to read it for the hell of it. Um, two cups of charm, lightly blended until it's fluffy and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> two, <laughs> I probably should have taken your workshop, Richard. Uh, two teaspoons of that unique spice of sass, which helps you to tell it like it is. And if you've taken a class, you probably know this, right? She, mm, sass, yep. Uh, perhaps a smidge of tough love. Oh my God, this is worse than I ever thought it was. Sprinkled on top, but only if you need it. A little bit of tough, tough love. Yeah. One cup each of deep knowledge of craft. One cup of superior intelligence. One cup of insight mixed in a separate container. Take those and fold it. I always read that in recipes. Fold it? I don't know what that means. When you fold it into something... I should take a class. Um, and then bake in an oven at high energy and serve warm. So, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, Vicki is, um, this is from her bio from Lighthouse. Um, hopefully it's relatively up to date. Yeah, we'll see. She'll, she'll, she'll correct me. Um, working on a memoir called Love Me Tomorrow. A great title. About a troubled interracial romance in the early 60s. Is this true still? Baby, it's you. That's a good title, also. They're both. She's really good at titles. Um, recent essays have appeared in Western Humanities Review, Shadowbox, American Literary Review, and New Writing. Um, please welcome Vicki Lindner.
9: How did you know I was a cook? Yeah, you, you fold with a spatula. You know you. Like this. Okay. All right. <laughs> So, um, I'm here to introduce Ray Kemble, who um, you know very well because he and his uh, delightful partner of many years, uh, Mel McDonald, have our volunteers here at Lighthouse, um, and they're present at everything. Right? Um, the essay that you're going to hear part of tonight, "Safe Landing." began when Ray and Mel visited Richard and me in my cabin in the Shoshone National Forest on their way home from Yellowstone. And we're sitting around, you know, drinking wine, except for Ray, who, for reasons you will soon hear, does no longer drink. Um, And out came the story of, of Mel surviving a famous airline crash in Sioux City in the early 80s. And, um, and at at the end of you know the story, Ray revealed that this was the catalyst that had brought them together and caused him to quit drinking and um I said that 's the best quitting drinking story I ever heard. <laughs> you have to write it and um Ray turned a little pale um but he he was game, and he began the essay in my personal essay class, and then went on to finish it in the course I've been recently teaching, Finishing Nonfiction. But he began a journey that all essayists face, how to turn the persona that represented himself, the character we call I in a personal essay, into a reliable narrator. Now, fiction writers have a lot of issues to deal with, but this is not one um, the unreliable narrator or character is an acceptable tradition in short stories and novels. The scoundrel can lie, be so deluded that it's impossible for the wise reader to believe him, or downright determined to pull the wool over all the other characters' eyes. We watch that character, that unreliable character, in um, his struggle or her struggle to arrive at the truth about life a truth we've already figured out ourselves, and watching that contradiction play itself out is part of what makes the fiction exciting. But the I in the traditional personal essay or memoir can never be unreliable, or almost never, unless you're doing something very experimental. And none of the nonfiction writers who've read tonight, we all believe they were telling the truth about themselves, right? Even the ones from the... Avant-garde class. Um, From the get-go, the personal essay's I must impress us with his or her self-knowledge and honesty, even as he or she tells us about a time in the life when those qualities were lacking. And that can require a ton of self-analysis of the psychological variety that Mike was speaking about before. So as Ray told the story of how a woman, his eye, was struggling to commit to, wanted to commit to, and couldn't quite do it yet, Um, how she almost perished in an airplane crash, he had a lot of very tough questions to answer. Why was my eye drinking? Why was my eye lonely? Why had none of my eyes' previous polymorphous relationships worked? And what was it about Mel that sparked a desire for change? Luckily for him, the finishing nonfiction workshop was populated with um, a lot of um, uh, amateur psychologists and... (laughs) And we were lucky enough to have a real psychotherapist, a transpersonal psychotherapist who trained at Naropa, and we kept finding murky places in Ray's eye (laughs) that demanded clarification, and sometimes attempted, we all attempted to explain Ray to himself. (laughs) Now that journey is ninety percent over, and the result, as you are about to see, embodies some very good writing and these personal revelations. Uh, Ray is an actor and a playwright, but this is the first time he will be playing himself.
10: (laughs) Oh, thank you, Vicki. Well, so we began the evening with the uh, Colorado Young Writers' Workshops. So I guess we'll wrap it up with the Colorado Old Writers' Workshop. <laughs> uh, as Mickey mentioned, I, I spent my life in theater, and um, those of you that know me, I mean, theater is a is a cooperative activity. It's kind of a team sport. And when I first came to Lighthouse, only about two years ago, um, I started hearing what a solo experience this would be. How lonely it would be. Everyone going, oh, I'm so alone, so alone, you know? Well, it's true. When you're sitting at home writing, you are alone. I'm going to steal a few minutes from my, my time here just to say a few words. Um, but I also discovered that there's another, there's another uh, facet to that where you're not alone. For example, I would not be standing here right now if it hadn't been for my workshop mates, Christopher Meyer, Lydia Gill... Um, Constance Hardesty and um, uh, Ali Gerkman, uh, and I certainly would not be standing here right now. Excuse me, if it had not been for the hardest working person I know my teacher, and that uh, is boldface and underscored Vicky Linda. Uh, Vicky taught me to begin each day with beginner 's mind, to have courage to persevere. And um, I um, am so appreciative for uh, her, um, as, as, as Mike alluded, um, to not waste words, not waste time, to cut right to the chase, and to never, never ever be shy about saying, oh, that's no good. <laughs> um, I respond to that. I like that a lot. I also want to thank and I think that's not really right but I want to acknowledge my partner of 24 years Mel who suffered the experience had that not happened there wouldn't be this story I will do this in pieces it's a long story I'm going to give you three segments of it I'll begin with the first few paragraphs of it then cut to a few reflective paragraphs and then in a sense cut to the chase toward the end of the story Safe landing. I was on a sofa in a dark place, half conscious in the light of a July sunset, when Lucy called. Please tell me you're not watching TV. If you are, you need to know. No, no, Lucy, I'm not watching TV. There was a shadow in my friend's voice that pulled me upright. Why? There's been a crash. Mel's flight. On hearing crash, my insides jammed. Mel, is she? Moments ago I was adrift. Now I was held. There was nothing but my hard breathing, the faraway click of the cubes in my bourbon, and the dead weight of the cordless phone. I waited for Lucy to say more, anything. Is she? Is she? She's alive. Thank God. I clamped my eyes shut, hoping when I opened them I'd be thinking clearly. Since getting home from work, I'd been drinking, as I did every evening, drinking myself into indifference. I set my bourbon on the end table with a practiced precision, touching the glass down slowly, so Lucy mightn't hear a click of ice and know I was drinking. But, Luce, I started and paused, lining up my words so they'd come out in some sensible order. But, but tell me, Luce, is... Is Mel, you know, is is she okay? Take this down. It's the Red Cross's number. Call them later. In the meantime, be careful, Ray. There's a video on TV of the crash landing. It's god awful. That afternoon, Mel had flown out of Denver's Stapleton Airport on her way to Buffalo. Her flight, United 232, had experienced a catastrophic event at 37,000 feet and dropped from the sky. Hold one thought, Ray. If you see that video, Lucille had said, Maureen's alive. She's coming home. In the summer of 1989, I had friends far fewer than I had in years past, friends with whom, because of my drinking, I'd made only cameo appearances. Going out to see them, I'd first loosen up with a few drinks at home. For the drive, I'd place refreshment, usually beer, in my VW's footwell. Arriving, I'd be sure to look sober, precise with my words, and prudent with my gestures. I never feared being argumentative, that just wasn't my nature. Instead, if, drink, if drinks were served, I'd become expansive, uh, lurching about living rooms, sharing bombastic witticisms. If we'd go out, I'd become—I'd be doubly on guard, not wanting to anyone to gauge my dependence. Only occasionally I'd chance blowing my cover, such as leaving a restaurant and noticing one of us was walking away from a half-finished drink. At the door, I'd say, oh, damn, I left my eyeglasses at the table and sprint back and drink the orphan drink. Penance would be paid the following morning when my encrusted eyelids would open and I'd be made to remember all of the night before. Oh, fuck, I'd confide in my ceiling. I knew there were sobriety programs. I had phone numbers on poster notes fluttering all around my apartment. But in the summer of 1989, I was pushing commitment down the calendar, vowing next week, or, or next month, or most useless of all, one day soon. I also had my solitude. Living, in, living alone in my Cheeseman Park apartment, I boasted of it, my solitude like it was some enviable contemplative state, some hard-won monastic achievement. I never dared call my solitude what it really was, loneliness. As far as I was concerned, people who were lonely were unfortunates dropped into medieval oubliettes to be forgotten. I wasn't suffering loneliness. I was blessed with my solitude. My solitude was an electable condition, Circumstantial, manageable, and if I chose, escapable. I'll cut there just briefly. Um, this is the late 80s. In the late 80s, there were really only two things in my life, uh, two things left in my life. There was an absence of friends, for the most part, and, and also my drinking Uh, My life up to that point had been a real patchwork. I mean, romantically, I'd had relationships with men. I'd had relationships with women. I'd lived with some of them. We'd dated. Not a single one was successful. I had jobs all over the country. I lived all over the country. In 1988, a group of people, near friends, uh, decided to form the Colorado Green Party and enlisted me in that effort. And one of those people was Mel McDonald. I found myself being drawn more and more and more toward Mel. Uh, and just as I was about to say to her, Could we be a pair? What do, do you think we could team up? That's when she boarded United Flight 232. I'm going to pick up here where I'm on the phone that evening with the Red Cross. Uh, Miss McDonnell has one minor injury, a scratched cornea, the voice answering the Red Cross said. Uh, the airline will be flying her back to Denver tomorrow. Flying? <laughs> I was incredulous. What? What if she doesn't want to fly? I mean, Jesus Christ. I squeezed my eyes shut, hoping when I opened them I'd have an idea. Look, look, uh, can you get a message to Miss McDonnell? If you can, tell her to wait. Tell her I'm, I'm coming for her. Sir? In my car. Sir, I... In my car. I was advised not to start out, not until I heard if Mel would wait for me. Hurry. That was my paramount thought. Hurry. I had to be ready to go the moment the Red Cross called. One more bourbon to lessen my anxiety. I reasoned, but that would be all for the night. Setting uh, a ten, my 10 year old Roadmaster Atlas on the dinette table and pressing it open to the two page Western States, I saw that Denver to Sioux City was 650 miles. Holy Christ, I thought. <laughs> 1,300 miles. 1,300 miles round trip. I could make it if I drove sensibly. I got my Mr. Coffee started. I had several vacuum bottles. I'll fill all of them. What would Mel like? Sandwiches. I, uh, I had a half loaf of Rudy's whole wheat, some just fruit jelly, and a jar of Adam's all-natural peanut butter. <laughs> On the way, I'd stop at the 7-Eleven and buy uh, uh, a dozen candy bars and two, three, six-packs of caffeinated soda. That'd be plenty for the 1,300 miles. <laughs> I... I packed my igloo cooler with the sandwiches, put the vacuum bottles in a plastic tote, and set everything by the front door. The video. I hadn't watched that yet. I gave myself permission for one more bourbon. My last, absolutely, to fortify myself. After all, Lucy had said the video was god-awful. Power on. And right away, I found a news anchor wrapping up, saying... And today's top story from Sioux City, the crash of United 232. At first, everything looked normal. The big DC-10 was coming down out of a clear sky. Then, a hundred or so feet above the runway, United 232's right wing sank, grazing the tarmac. The wing rose and 232 seemed to right itself. Then the wing sank a second time, this time gouging the runway. Propelled at more than 300 miles per hour, 232 cracked free of its impaled wing, but not without consequence. The plane caromed down the runway, jerked about crazily by its own momentum. Flame and smoke spread everywhere. On a hard bounce, 232's nose dropped, punching the runway, sending its block-long fuselage teeter-tottering up in the air. Hammered back down, the plane broke apart. The remaining left wing cracked off. The nose, flight deck, and the first-class section spun ahead like a crazed shuttlecock. The rear section, with 67 people in their seats, scraped to an incendiary stop in a pool of burning fuel. The midsection, with 216 people buckled in, struck and began a slow-motion roll like a fall redwood, over and over and over until flattening a perimeter fence and coming to a rocking stop, belly-side up, in a stand of Iowa corn. (coughs) Mel was somewhere in that midsection. I imagined seeing her, buckle tight, going over and over, caught in a tunnel of screaming, ending upside down, I saw Mel fight to unbuckle herself in somersault to what had been the plane's ceiling but was now its floor. I saw her stumble toward a rent in the fuselage, toward a wedge of sunlight. I imagined, too, as Mel fought to survive the horrific sight she was seeing. The video ended with a wide shot, United 232 dismembered, lying motionless beneath multiple columns of black smoke curling up into a clear sky. I pressed power off. Got to be ready, got to be ready, got to be ready. I said half aloud. A drink, a last one. I promised to myself. I looked at the phone. God damn it! Ring. My brains a knot. I sank at the dinette table and spun the road map to face me, and once more ran my fingertip along the thick red line from Denver to Sioux City. I can do this. I told myself. I can. I tried getting up, but didn't. Afraid I didn't quite have my balance. Instead, I sat there finishing my last drink. I made a plan for after the Red Cross called for what I'd do before starting out. Before starting out, I'd set this in my mind. Before starting out, before getting in my car, and before starting out, I'd go outside and take in as much as I could of the clarifying night air. I'd breathe deeply, maybe walk up and down the block a few times, maybe even run. I'd make myself sober. It had worked in the past. That's what i do. I'd make myself sober. That was the plan. At 10 to 11, the phone rang. I lunged for it. Miss McDonald is accepting the airline's offer and flying back to Denver. I surrendered. I slapped off the lights and fell into bed. I'm going to stop there, but just say... Um, Mel and I, as I mentioned before, have been together for 24 years now. Um, I did not stop drinking that night. I wished I had because I never again wanted a recurrence, another repeat of that night that I thought I was going to be able to drive to Sioux City. Uh, So I drank drank more recklessly from that point on. When I finally did stop uh, three years later, um, Mel said to me uh, uh, very simply, uh, let me help you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Mel, for surviving that crash. Um, Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Uh, Thank you for being supporters of Lighthouse, for being members, for taking workshops, for just coming down and hanging out. Please let's continue the celebration of these amazing writers upstairs and let's give them one more round of applause.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible the Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District. The National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.